this past year made it easy for us to get spiritually distracted. After the pandemic hit in March, each of us had to figure out how to adjust to the surprise of a crisis we never saw coming. All of us have experienced or known someone who has experienced some tragedy, and it's understandable for all of us to feel derailed. We had all these plans and we just had to scrap them. A very unplanned disaster has occupied our attention. It just seems like COVID has free rent space in our minds and hearts. But as Christians, our focus always has to return to Christ. And I know that might seem kind of confusing. You might think, well, focusing on Jesus can't really help us out right now. The problems in our world need our undivided attention. When people like Christians turn their attention away from the issues and away from the problems in our world and towards their religion, it just seems like they're avoiding problems. But Christians have always flipped that logic on its head. Jesus is the meaning of life. Christ is the center point of human history. So whatever problems come our way, we want to see them in light of Christ. Christians want to know what Christ is up to. For some mysterious reason, Jesus has allowed this time of trial to come our way. And so we want to know what he's up to. To lose sight of him is to actually lose the goal of our lives. For Christians, Christ is never a distraction. Christ always sheds light on our situation. He helps us to see it better not worse. So in order to return our attention to Jesus, we're going to focus a new sermon series on the gospel of John. This series is going to be called Come and See. This was a phrase that Jesus used to invite men and women to follow him. Whenever they were curious about him, whenever they were asking him questions, he would say, come and see. Now, the Gospel of John uh, is written by a man who is probably the youngest of the 12 original apostles of Jesus. And tradition has it that he wrote five of the books of the New Testament, one of which is a gospel. And he explicitly says what he wants the gospel to accomplish. He says, this is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus uh, throughout this gospel is uh, calling people to belief. So John wants his gospel to convert people from life without the Messiah to abundant life with the Messiah. And that phrase that you might believe applies to Christians and not Christians. He wants, if you're a Christian, to go on believing, to continue to trust in Jesus in a deeper way. And if you're not a Christian, John wants you to begin to believe and trust in Jesus. One theologian named Gregory the Great compared the Bible to a smooth, deep river in which a lamb may walk and an elephant may swim. And I think that quote applies to the Gospel of John. This book is for beginners and veterans. It's simple and profound. And whether you're brand new to faith or you've been a Christian as long as you can remember, the Gospel of John is for you. So in chapter one, verse one, that's where we're starting. We read the famous three words in the beginning. The only other time this phrase is used is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, when we're uh, seeing the creation of the cosmos. It says, in the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. So John and his gospel is retelling the creation story, but he's focusing on God's word. And God's word is not like human words. God's word is a person. And somehow, in a mysterious way, God's word is both with God and God himself. John describes God's word as true light, as God's only son. But the problem is we don't get a name for this person. We don't get a way to identify who this word really is. John, the apostle, just emphasizes who the word isn't. He says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is different from the author. This is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came as a witness to the light, to testify to the light, but he himself was not the light. All the... All the Baptist is, is the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the, of the Lord. In other words, John the Baptist is the one who prepares the way for the real person. He is the messenger. He is not the one in charge. And in verse 29, we finally see that John the Baptist witnesses to a person with a name in the flesh. One day he's baptizing people in preparation for the Messiah, and he says he sees Jesus. Jesus coming toward him, and he points at him, and he declares, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who comes after me, who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I said, I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. I saw the Spirit descend upon him and remain on him, and I myself have seen and testified that that man is the Son of God. So now we finally, at the end of the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we know who the Word is. The Word is with God in the beginning. He's true light. He's God's only Son. He became flesh, and His name is Jesus. The whole subject of this book is not John the Baptist. It's not John the Apostle. It's not any of the other apostles. It is Jesus, this man who is also God. Now, for Christians, that might kind of seem like old news. If you've grown up in church, you've heard that a lot. For those of you who aren't Christian, you may think that sounds crazy. But this is our bedrock belief. This is the foundation of our faith. We care about Jesus because of who he is, and he is fully God. The creator of the universe, the source of all reality, the sustainer of time and space, who is somehow also fully human, conceived in a womb. He had a birthday we just celebrated. He was nursed by his mother. He ate, drank, slept, got tired, and cried. And ever since, that union of God and mankind in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ has never stopped being God and never stopped being human. John, the author of this gospel, makes no effort to conceal that very incomprehensible truth that Jesus is God and man. Now, once John establishes that fact, he goes on to tell stories of Jesus performing miracles left and right. In the first 11 chapters of John's gospel, Jesus is healing the sick, giving sight to the blind. He's raising the dead, and that's just a few of his miracles. And here's the thing, even if you can believe for a second that Jesus is both God and man, I think a lot of us struggle with those miracle stories. 
Jesus's humanity and divinity can seem so abstract. We just kind of chalk it up to a mystery and say that we believe it. But miracles are so visceral. They just seem so tangible that we just have a hard time believing that they can be real. If you actually saw a miracle in the flesh, you would be shocked. And so we struggle with them. Maybe we feel skeptical of divine intervention. Maybe we believe, look, this is the universe we have. We shouldn't pretend that there's a being who can swoop in and change the rules of nature. Miracles just seem hard to believe. Maybe they're just a denial of reality. Others of us struggle with miracles because the miracle we prayed for didn't happen. Maybe you used to believe in miracles in the past, but now you just feel cynical or jaded about them because you asked God for one and he didn't step in. A few years ago, I was expressing some of my struggles to a mentor about these miracle stories. I could believe that God exists, God is love, God has cared for us and made promises to us, but I just, I just couldn't find myself believing in these miracles. And my mentor said this. He said, I get why people don't believe in miracles because they don't believe in God. But he said, I don't understand believing in God and not in miracles. And he gave me this analogy that really helped me. He said, believing in God, but not in miracles is like believing in the ocean, but not in a cup of water. If you can believe in the greater, you can believe in the lesser. He said, God is the author of the story we're all living in. So saying God can't perform miracles is kind of like saying an author can't write her own book. My mentor said, you can have God in miracles. You can reject both, but you can't have God without being open to his miracles. And look, maybe you don't buy that explanation. Maybe you think that analogy breaks down somewhere. But I think John starts his gospel with Christ's true identity as God for this reason. He's saying Jesus is not a mere human being like you or me. He's not even just a special person that God picked after he was born. He's, he's not even just a prophet. He is God's word who became flesh, the word who was in the beginning, who is with God and is God. He is God from God, true light from true light. All things visible and invisible are created through him. So if he is fully God, fully divine, there's no miracle beyond his ability. Whether he heals the sick or casts out demons or gives sight to the blind or makes paralyzed men walk or he raises the dead. His miracles are never greater than him. They're always beneath him. The miracles are not equivalent to the Messiah. And Jesus himself makes this point throughout the gospel. The crowds who follow Jesus are obsessed with his signs. They always keep following him wherever he goes. And if they lose track of him, they sprint after him. They Ask him one time, what sign can you show us, Jesus? They're begging, demanding Jesus for more impressive spectacles. And Jesus gets so tired of this. He gets so exasperated. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's upset with them. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit and asks, why does this generation seek a sign? Clearly, Jesus is upset with this. The signs and wonders he performs are not what makes him significant or wonderful. Jesus is God in the flesh. That is enough 
to make him significant. We have this uh, wonderful church that meets on Wednesday nights called All God's Children, and we do this Bible study each week, and they know way more than I do about the Bible, so I have to study a lot harder for Wednesday nights. And one time we got into this friendly debate about whether it's bad to ask God for signs. We were going through the story of Abraham, and God promises Abraham in the ripe age of 75 that he will have a child, and he's going to have all these descendants through him. And Abraham says, oh God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. So one man raised his hand and he said, it's wrong for Abraham to ask God to give him a sign. He, he quoted Paul and he said, you know, Paul once said, Jews ask for sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So this man said in, in the group that asking for signs is itself a sign of distrust. We should have more faith in Jesus, not ask for more miracles. Another man raised his hand in the group and brought up the story of Gideon. He said, Gideon asked God for all these ridiculous signs, and God gives it to him. It can't be wrong to ask God for more evidence to believe in him. Here's what I said at the time, and you can tell me what you think. On the one hand, there is no such thing as the perfect number of miracles that can satisfy human desires. God has given enough evidence of his faithfulness to us that we can trust him without more miracles. If for the next thousand years, God never performed another miracle, we would have a plenty to believe and trust in him. Even Gideon knew something was a bit wrong with his requests because he tells God, don't let your anger burn against me. Clearly, there is some sort of human weakness in demanding more and more and more signs. On the other hand, though, when we ask God for signs, God is so gracious, he will stoop to our weakness and sometimes do them for us. In the story we're going to read about next week in John chapter 2, Jesus's mother asked Jesus to do a miracle. They're at a wedding. The wedding reception has run out of wine, and uh, Mary wants him to provide the wine for the wedding. And Jesus says, it's not my time yet. Mary, directly after that, turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Mary clearly knows that Jesus is going to perform this miracle, not because it's necessary, not because he needs to do it to prove his trustworthiness, but because he's just extravagant in his graciousness to us. And that's the good news about Jesus. He performs these signs and wonders, but he always wants to put a little asterisk on them. He knows that his miracles can be misconstrued, that they can distract from him. He would rather us just trust in him without needing more and more of these signs. He one time says to his disciples, blessed are those who do not see and yet still believe. And I think that can totally apply to his miracles. You and I might go through our whole lives never experiencing a miracle firsthand. And Jesus says, blessed are you if you do not see and yet still believe. Miracles have their place. God saved the Israelites from slavery by parting the Red Sea. He gave them miraculous bread from heaven and the manna. He made Jericho's wall crumble into dust. But miracles are not given to us because God hasn't done enough. Miracles are signs. They're markers that point to the Messiah. They are not fireworks to impress us. So my prayer is that this sermon series would do exactly what John intended, that we would look at Jesus's signs, yes, 
but we would see how they point to him. And my hope is that if you've never known Christ, if you feel far from him, that you would come and see him, that you would read these stories in the gospels and you would find faith in him, that you would trust deeper in him. And if you've known Jesus your whole life and you've been going to church your whole life, that you would go on and continue to believe in him. Miracles are signs that we can misconstrue into distractions, but Christ is never a distraction.